Hello, book enthusiasts and pursuers of ever more knowledge on this twisty, turny industry that is book publishing. Welcome to the second week of our Best of Summer series, which is featuring Rachel Heron and Joe Beal and the business of publishing. Rachel's episode on money grant was by far the most popular episode we've probably ever done just from my very informal gauge of listener feedback. (laughs) You know, Mm. we heard from a lot of people that they loved it, loved her. And so I've been racking my brain, though clearly not too hard, uh, about what other kinds of how-to episodes or insightful or sort of peel back the layers episodes we could offer to listeners in year six. Uh, And listeners, if you have ideas of things you'd like to hear about or know about, please let us know because we're looking. Um, But you know, money and talking transparently about money is a big deal, I think, mostly because not enough people do it. Who would have thought, Brooke, that by having an author on, have have her open up her checkbook, essentially, (laughs) open up her bank accounts and show us um, where the author income comes from? Who would have thought that'd be interesting? (laughs) <laughs> no, but it was really interesting. And, and Rachel was really brave to to be so forthcoming and, and provide so many different perspectives because money, you know, it's super important to talk about because the more authors talk about money, the more they empower other authors because publishing is such a cryptic world when it comes to these matters and, and you lose power in it because of what you don't know about it. And Rachel's mission is to to empower authors as that's our mission as well. And so that's why it's, you know, it's, it, we're living in, in a culture where it's pretty taboo to talk about money and, and authors oftentimes don't want to talk about money because it, it can make them feel what their value is in the whole food chain, you know? Um, so I think that's why they're not forthcoming about it for many uh, reasons. And then Joe Beal, man, he was such a great compliment here because his episode earlier this year touched upon passion and building something with purpose in mind and knowing your audience. And And it's not about money per se, but it, but it is about money insofar as Joe and his company, Microcosm Publishing, left Amazon, believe it or not. And that's ostensibly a big money move because most publishers would imagine that doing so is leaving behind a big pile of cash but that's not been his experience actually and he he shares you know some things about that in his interview which i found super inspiring all around yeah i agree with that grant both of these guests are great which is why we're choosing to revisit them Uh, and before we get to those interviews it's mid-august so i just want to know i am camping this week so as we're recording this a bit in advance i'm just imagining myself and what i will be doing while people are listening to this and i will probably be paddleboarding with my golden retriever b who loves to sit on the paddleboard with me as long as i'm also seated down beside her or behind her as the case might be Uh, i'm going to be tent camping which is marvelous and wonderful unless it's freezing cold like it was last year when we did this same trip of the fourth of july Uh, and i'll be sitting around the campfire long hours and hopefully reading though probably entertaining or being entertained by kids grant do you have any worthwhile mid-august plans to share as we close here today no worthwhile plans. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish I had some great plans, but I'm I'm putting the finishing touches on my newest book proposal with my agent because she plans to submit it in September. So I'm excited about that, actually. And then I'm also putting more finishing touches on my novel that I've put the finishing touches on several times. You know, that's the funny thing about novels. They keep needing more finishing touches. And that's because we're also going to submit that this fall. So a lot of extra work for August, but good work. So yeah, uh, I'll think of you on the paddleboard Brooke, please have a s'more for me and tell some campfire stories and think of me grinding away on writing projects. Joyfully, of course. 
Well, Grant, uh, I will be imagining you toiling away, but for a good cause and, and good luck with all of those finishing touches is not such a bad way to spend August. So enjoy these two interviews with Rachel and Joe, and we will be back on the other side. I am excited to introduce Rachel Heron, an old friend and also an internationally best-selling author of more than two dozen books, including thrillers under R.H. Heron, mainstream fiction, feminist romance, memoir, and nonfiction about writing. She received her MFA in writing from Mills College, Oakland, and she teaches writing extension workshops at both UC Berkeley and Stanford. She is a proud member of the NaNoWriMo Writers Board and a veteran NaNoWriMo writer. And she's a New Zealand citizen now, as well as an American. And she lives in Wellington, New Zealand. Welcome, Rachel, all the way from New Zealand. It is so nice to talk to you, Grant and Brooke. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. And we're, we're going to dig into your bank account, all your statements, your <laughs> tax documents. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's it, I've always, I, I noticed, you know, several years ago, you wrote a blog post about your, your writing income. And I think, I just thought that was so brave of you to do and how you've maintained doing an annual reveal of how much money you make as a writer. And um, it's, it's important for, for so many different reasons. Um, but I was wondering if you can kind of tell us like what sparked you to do it and then why you continue to do an annual income report. And then it would be great if you can give it a, a little bit of an overview of this year's report. Absolutely. So what sparked doing it was that I just knew that there was not enough transparency when it came to the finances of writers. There's this, there was this myth out there when I started that either you made literally zero dollars, negative dollars, you're spending money, or you are a millionaire. And there was nothing in between. And I knew lots of people who were publishing books or writing articles or teaching, but I had no idea what these people made. And, you know, I, and I would talk to my friends and our faces would kind of squinch up as we started to talk about things. And the more we talked about what we made as writers, the more comfortable we got with this. And I believe that shrouding all of this in secrecy does writers a disservice. It is true that lots of books make very, very little money. And it is true also that some writers make millions and millions of dollars. But I think the majority of us working writers are somewhere in the middle with that. And so I published the first earnings report. I believe it was probably 2014 or 15 or so maybe. And I've done it every year since then. I have a podcast called How Do You Write? And on the first episode of every year, I break down what I made and how I made it. And I got to tell you, I love doing it. And also because each year I have actually made more money, it has made me super uncomfortable. And it is something that uh, two years ago, I felt so uncomfortable talking about it that I had few people writing back in response to that podcast saying, don't feel uncomfortable, just say it. Don't apologize for what you're making. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. I should not apologize for that because I work hard and I love talking to people about this. So um, without further ado, I will let you, okay, no, look, my voice was starting to do that apologetic thing. I'm going to tell you <laughs> what I made last year. So um, I do a little bit of everything. I really believe in diversifying where the money comes from. Many, many, many streams of income. I get lots and lots and lots and lots of deposits into my account. And sometimes it's 12 cents and 23 cents and $1.47. And I don't laugh about any of that. Actually, Grant was on my show recently, and I was telling him this new thing that I do. Whenever 
$1.27 hits my bank account, I think to myself in my head, I think, thank you to the reader who chose to spend time with me. So um, in 2022, I sold, uh, I made about $27,000 from traditional publishing. I made $55,306 from self-publishing, including audio. So for a total of 82,000-ish, that was the books that I sold, which is incredible. I'm really, really proud of myself for that. And actually, um, if people go back and listen to that first episode of this year, I'm sure I got some of the numbers wrong because it's never until after taxes are done that I actually realize what I truly made. So $82,000 from publishing, uh, from books, makes me super happy. And then the part that always makes me feel a little bit strange, and it won't today, um, but I do a lot of stuff to help other writers because it is truly a passion of mine. And I coach and I teach. I do online conferences. I do in-person appearances. And um, I do this online writing together thing. So for a grand total of $100,946, so almost $101,000 last year uh, for that. And I kind of keep, I, I think of that as the teaching um, bucket. And then I also have this other bucket uh, that's just a Patreon bucket. And I really love the Patreon bucket. That brought me 15800 last year. And in the Patreon, I, prov- I, I write one essay a month and creative nonfiction is just my passion. And what I'm doing last year for that $15,794 is I'm giving myself an advance on a book. I'm writing an essay, an essay, an essay, and then I can collect them together into books, which I can either give to my agent to sell or self-publish myself. So that's super cool. So for a grand total of $198,647, the year before that was $190,000. So I went up by about $8,000. Wow. Eek! Big congratulations. Congratulations. And also thanks for the transparency, because I think that's what people love. You know, we're just so conditioned not to talk about money and it's refreshing, I have to say. And I read that early in your writing career, you got a three book deal with an advance of $110,000. And a lot of your friends were saying, you've made it now and you can become a full-time author. And clearly that was not the case. So what was your thinking on that now versus then? Oh, see, that's such a, that's... That's so good. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of math and I want to like, I want to admire everybody listening to this because writers are the most positive, optimistic, stout hearted people in the world. We are born with hope in our very souls. So um, I don't want this to hurt any souls, but this is another part of the myth that needs to be broken. So I made this six figure deal on my first book that was a NaNoWriMo book. Um, My very first NaNoWriMo book became the first in this series. And it went in a three book deal at auction to HarperCollins for $110,000 for a three book deal. So that broke down, you know, and everybody's like, and me, I am like, oh my God, I have made it big, big, big time. Um, But after we do the math, that's, they publish one book a year. That's 36,000 600 per year after your 15% to your agent and after 23-ish or whatever your tax bracket is percent to taxes plus the 15% for self-employment tax that you have to pay if you're a writer, that leaves $17,000 a year for those three books. And I lived in Oakland back then. I lived in the Bay Area, $17,000 while 
amazing. And I will never, ever take that for granted. Um, I couldn't live on $70,000 a year. So I made that deal, but I had to continue working. I worked and wrote full-time. I worked as a 911 fire dispatcher um, and I wrote full-time for about 10 years before I was able to quit the day job and just be writing. Wow. Perfect segue, um, Rachel, because I, I have this great quote from you. You said, Maslow's hierarchy of needs says that before we even get to write a book, let alone live off the royalty checks, we need food, water, shelter, clothes, sleep, health, emotional well-being, safety, friendships, intimacy, and at the very least, some basic self-esteem. And if we have all those things and still have some money left over to pay for health insurance, writing snacks on the internet, only then do we get to think about writing full time. And I remember when you made that huge leap and it felt like a leap, at least to me, um, to go from a 911 operator to, to writing full time. And it's interesting to me to hear you give all these calculations for the mathematically challenged writers who are among <laughs> us. And, and also, but, but it involved emotional calculations as well. So can, can you yes. tell us about that moment when you, you made, that was a huge decision. It was a huge decision to go full-time. That was 2016 um, that I did that. So it's been, what is that, seven years now that I've been doing this. And I've, I've made more every year. However, I in another part of full transparency, at one point in my life, I could not look at money. I couldn't think about money. I didn't know how much we had because we had so little of it. We were so in the hole. My wife and I bought a house right before the big crash, we bought it with fake money. You know, the money that mortgage brokers were just giving you. I didn't, I shouldn't have been able to buy a house, but we did. And at one point we were not, not including the house, but at one point my wife and I were $127,000 in debt. That was IRS debt. That was, um, from, from an old thing from her, uh, that was $50,000 of student loan debt for me and a just ton of credit card debt. And I felt so trapped. And it was a friend of mine um, who was kind of in a very similar situation. We decided to see what we could learn about money. And we came across this program, and I'm going to give it a huge plug. It's called You Need a Budget or YNAB, youneedabudget.com. They changed. It's just it's basically budgeting software, but it's not like any other budgeting software. And people who use it and who learn how to use it, I actually learned how much we needed. Because I knew all I knew was at the end of every month, we were short. And that's because I didn't know at that point that every pet that we had cost $100 for us to like, you know, in terms of food and vet bills amortized over the whole year. So, so this program, You Need a Budget, really taught me that. And writing and making these sales allow, and working hard and doing overtime at my job allowed me to pay off all of our debt. Um, we didn't have – I knew that I couldn't quit my – day job until we had zero debt. I, I had finally learned that debt was an emergency. Debt was money that I had to pay off first. And it was depressing and hard and awful and also wonderful to finally get out of it. And the day that we paid off my the student loan was one of the best days of my life. And we had no car debt. We had only had the house. And I knew that I had to bring in $3,000 a month to make my portion of the mortgage. And I have done that every month ever since, but I, I tell you, I still worry that we're going to have to go live under a bridge, even though we've made this amazing jump to New Zealand and we just bought our house here last month. It's still, I think money is always going to be a concern, but understanding it and understanding, especially in writing the ebbs and the flows, you know, you can get a bunch of money and then not see anything for a while. So for me, having those multiple streams of income is what is key for me being able 
to sleep and and continue to do this job. But I tell you what, if I need to go get a job, I'll get a job. I will. We don't have a Trader Joe's here, but that's what I always said I would do <laughs> if, I, if I needed to. Just you know, that's that we do what we need to do to cover those Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then we get to write as well. I can see you doing well there. You're so friendly and I love to check out people at Trader Joe's. So I do too. Uh, I, I miss that. <laughs> yes, I bet. So speaking to those multiple streams of income, because at the beginning you graciously let us know that you have all these multiple things you're doing. So speaking, the Patreon, the coaching, plus the books, of course. So how have you carved out these different pieces? I mean, was that organic or was that out of necessity? A little bit of both. Um, the Patreon, it, Patreon was just ramping up, I think, in about 2015 when I was thinking about exiting my job. And I remember at that point, you could you could put a, I don't know if you could still do this, but you could put a goal on it. And I put a goal of, um, I won't even, my Patreon won't go live unless I hit $500. And I'll probably never hit a $500 a month pledge. And I hit that $500 a month pledge in a couple of days by asking people who had been reading my blog or reading my books for a while. And um, and I just remember thinking how kind and generous those people were to give me these dollar amounts, $5 here, $1 there to support me. So Patreon has always, has always got a huge part of my heart. It was what enabled me to know that at least that portion of money would be coming in regularly. So I always make sure that I make time to write that essay every month. And it's some of my favorite writing I ever do. And it, it needs to be good for me to send it out to them, even though it's basic, they know they're getting basically a, a second draft, but I want it to be good. Um, everything else I've carved, I've, I haven't so much carved out as I have grabbed with both hands and tried. I, I am kind of the entrepreneurial sort. I remember as a kid, I had, you know, I always had some kind of business going. I sold bumper stickers and I painted curbsides with numbers for emergency responders. And, and I always was after a hustle. And what has happened over the course of years has been really, really great in that I have tried everything and I've made a little bit of money doing a little bit of everything. I used to um, doctor query letters and uh, do uh, different kinds of coaching. But what I've done is I've weeded out the things now that I don't love, love to do, that don't give me energy. And that is, um, that's a privilege because at the beginning I was doing everything. I was formatting large print books. Uh, I was, I was just trying a little bit of everything. And, and now I just do what I love, which is really, really the teaching. That's so interesting, Rachel. Um, cause my next question is on this subject of the side hustle. And I mentioned your pie chart of different diverse revenue streams, um, an income to a friend. And I, I mentioned it in a highly complimentary way, but her reaction was actually that she was concerned that you were churning out books and classes and stuff like that to make a living and not nourishing your creative expression. And I know that to not be the case, but I'm curious, how would you answer that? How are you making sure that your creative expression is primary? I love this question. That is a natural response. I would probably have that response to, to myself if I heard about this, right? Um, but for me, I think I think you and I talked about this recently. Is I always had this thought in my head that a truly successful writer would be making more money writing, the book selling, than doing anything else. And for years, I have made a little bit more money from teaching than I have from writing. And it was a source of frustration to me until recently I 
just this last year, I realized how much teaching gives my soul and fills my soul and fills me in a way that I think writing never will be able to. And writing, of course, feeds me something different that teaching will never be able to. And the fact that I get to have both of these things and the fact that teaching pays well means that I don't have to hustle to churn out books anymore. I only write what I love now. I write about one book a year, which is kind of, I, I guess I was up to about two books a year for a while there, but right now I'm doing about one book a year and, and only what I'm passionate about. And my goal for my writing is always to feel that the last book that I wrote was the best book. So the last book that came out was Hush Little Baby um, from, it was a thriller, came out from Penguin Dutton. Uh, and it's the best book that I've ever published. And I got to tell you, nobody's read it. Nobody has read it. It has absolutely failed. Um, selling wise, the thriller that came before it, Stolen Things has earned out. It's still making money. It's doing great. Um, but it, but I, I only bring that up to mention that I will never see another dime on Hush Little Baby, but I remain content because that is my strongest book so far. And the next book that I publish, it has to be stronger than Hush Little Baby for me to be satisfied. And teaching and doing all this other stuff allows me the time to do that. Well, Rachel, in closing, I'm curious if you could come up with your, your, your number one bit of advice for listeners about making a living as a writer. And you can, you can toss in just your number one bit of advice about writing as, as well if you want. <laughs> Let's see. Um, making a living as a writer, don't let anybody tell you that it can't be done. It is not only doable, it is being done all the time. I have so many friends, and I know that you both do too, who are making living wages or better, and no one has ever heard of them. No one is talking about them at the next party you go to. They're not on book club lists, but they're making solid money. And my advice about that is to think about your writing career as creatively as you do your books. Open your mind and look around to see if you need to make more money, where can you get it? There are some people who like to make money within the writing world. That's what I do. Um, but one of my best friends, Sophie Littlefield, she would rather die than make money uh, any other way than a book. So when she runs out of money, she does. She goes out and gets a job at the container store or she was driving for Lyft for a while. Um, I think one of the best ways to be to make a living as a working writer is to be open to filling in the gaps where we need to, to support ourselves and our families and our lives um, in healthy ways that keep us happy. And, and the money that we make from writing is just, oh, it's so good. It feels so good. Um, <laughs> and it can be, and it can be done. And the, I, what was the other question? The most, um, well, I know you've got, you've got so much advice for writing and you've written so <laughs> many books on it. I just figure you can reach into your back pocket and pull out like some closing inspiration. Well, uh, it comes from um, something my friend Jay Wells always says, uh, which is follow the juice. Follow the juice. If you are writing the book that you're writing and it feels dead and flat, it does not mean you should abandon that book. In fact, you probably shouldn't. Um, but go find something juicier in the book. Jump ahead or jump back or do something new. We have to get excited about what we're writing. We have to we have to love what we're writing. A lot of the time, there will be days where it just all sucks um, and it's all hard. But if we can remember to follow the juice, that is and have fun. That is the biggest piece of advice I think I can give. Cool, that is so good, Rachel. Thank you so much. You're always inspirational. 
Thanks, Rachel. It was a joy to be with y'all today. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Brooke. We're so excited to have Joe Beal with us today. Joe is a self-made autistic publisher and filmmaker who draws origins, inspiration, and methods from punk rock. Joe is the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing, which is Publishers Weekly's number one fastest growing publisher of last year. Joe has been featured in Time Magazine, NPR, Publishers Weekly, Art of Autism, and elsewhere. And he's also the author of many books and the director of five feature films and hundreds of shorts. Joe, you're joining us from Portland, Oregon. Welcome. Thank you. That is a spectacular uh, welcome. Yeah, so excited to talk to you. I want to actually open with a question about risk taking. I I feel like you're a person who takes a lot of risks and notably uh, the work you publish, first of all, I mean, uh, and we'll get into that a bit more, but I also wanted to ask you about this decision that you made in 2018 to no longer supply your books to Amazon, which meant leaving your distributor. Uh, And I'm wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about that, but also speak to your relationship to risk. I mean, are you a counterphobic kind of person or is there fear involved with something like this, but you just kind of do it anyway uh, because it's the right thing to do? You know, it's funny. I never thought about it in the way that you framed it. When we made that decision in 2018, it had been, you know, we had had staff for years, you know, we had um, a major account salesperson where literally on her first day at work, she was like, why do we have a distributor? We could do so much more on our own. And, you know, and I, I think it's more than risk. We approach things, I approach things from just a much more like pragmatic view where we're looking at it from you know, how do the systems work? What do we want to get out of it? What is the shortest path between two points? You know, we're really looking at it from like a systems thinking point of view. And um, so when we made that decision, it was because, you know, I mean, on some level, sure, it's the right thing to do. But from our stance, it was that, you know, we had one account that was taking the most predatory terms, they weren't really bringing a lot to the table. We, you know, so we weren't getting a lot out of it. And then it got to the point where, you know, we've watched over 20 some years where the relationship to the distributor became more of a paperwork, you know, busy work kind of relationship rather than, you know, or as one publisher joked to me, you know, he said, every time I ask my distributor for something, they give me more paperwork to fill out. And it's almost like it's like to, you know, keep me busy. So I can't like ask for more things. And, you know, and it's more and I get it that it's the there's a necessary nature of bureaucracy to anything that you do, you know, it has to be organized, and they have to have good records. But then on another level, we had always been the most successful when we were self-distributing. And I had wanted to do that uh, way back in 2011, but it wasn't quite right yet then. And so by 2018, when we made that decision in July, it was more along the lines of like, 
maybe if we work really hard, we can do just as good as, you know, like we are under our distributor. And, you know, it, it was immediately we were up 42% in the first quarter, and then we had more than doubled by the end of that year. So I think, you know, it's hard to remember, even though that's only really four and five years ago. I I, I want to say that was mostly a decision brought about by like how many hours a week do we have to put into this relationship versus how could we better spend those hours getting our books to the people that love them. It's always interesting how decisions are made, Joe, and that was fascinating to hear. I'm going to go back in time again with you because you, you, your publishing company, Microcosm, was started in a bedroom closet as a record label in 1996, and now it's one of the oldest independent book publishing houses in Portland. And one of the strange things of getting older and time passing is how we see what we're doing, especially with creative endeavors like yours, because they, you know, they go from being these very bootstrap endeavors to being something much more legitimate and, and, and with that comes more responsibility. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the evolution of microcosm and why you think you've been able to have such longevity and growth as an indie publisher. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I, it's interesting because, you know, I'm closer to it, of course, but so I don't really see that trajectory because, you know, to me, it was so incremental and over such a long period of time mm. that, you know, I think of that as like, we're still pretty much doing the same thing we were doing 23 years ago, but or 28, you know, I can't even keep track anymore. You know, more That's than a sign of success when you yeah. can't keep track. <laughs> but then when I look at it from a, like a starker timeline where I'm like, right, things are very different now. There's, you know, there's, we have departments and, you know, we have much bigger staff and, you know, we, we have multiple, you know, we just bought a third warehouse uh, last month, you know, and it's things like that, that, you know, just wouldn't have even been possible even 10 years ago. And so, you know, I guess it's like, we started out, you know, I started out once upon a time, it was just me to really kind of create the tools and resources that were lacking for me as a child. So I looked at it from the point of view of, you know, looking at a lot of the reading that had been assigned to me and how much it just did not resonate with me. And then looking at what that could look like in a, you know, sort of a radical re-envisioning of like, what would make that interesting? What would help connect you know, and and I wasn't even thinking of it in terms of books at the time. I was just thinking of it as like books are a great way to package information, you know, and mind you, this is the 90s. So it's like we, you know, the Internet was very much what it was. But even then, I guess for whatever reason, I didn't think of that as the best way to convey those things. And, you know, and I think that was why we sort of focused early on like e-commerce and direct-to-consumer and things that, you know, they didn't have those names yet at that time. They were just, you know, people would be like, you have a website, you know, was kind of more <laughs> like how that conversation went in the 90s. But, you know, and so we did those things. And then what happened was people were very positively responding to what we were doing, the subject matter that we engaged with, you know, the specificity of the books. And then very quickly, it was clear where the gaps were in the industry. 
And definitely in the 90s, what we were doing was, I would say, like a lot more forward thinking, whereas a lot of the bookstores just didn't get it and didn't want to touch it. So we were sold more in specialty stores. And then what we did was, you know, we sort of created what is now called specialty markets, where you sell books to places that do not primarily sell books. And now that's like a whole niche within the industry, you know, and whereas at that time we were met a lot more with like, oh, you kids don't know what you're doing. And then, you know, but that has really served us really well because it allowed us to kind of grow and evolve without changing how we do book development or how we, you know, think of like our mission or our role within the industry. And we didn't really have competitors because we had been doing something so different from everybody else that by the time people started to imitate us, we were really, really flattered. And, but they're also, you know, they couldn't really cut into that because we were so established in those segments, you know. I'm glad you mentioned that the whole, like, you kids don't know what you're doing. Cause I think there's something about when you're young and green and, you know, willing to take those risks, you're kind of pushing boundaries, whether you realize it or not. And I, I was just, you know, as I dove into your stuff, that's what I felt is like microcosm and you specifically too are pushing boundaries. And the reason that I called you up to interview you actually is because of this little book pamphlet <laughs> that you guys did called uh, How to Resist Amazon and Why, uh, which we're going to recommend everyone read. It's a fabulous little booklet. Um, but beyond that, you have other pretty edgy and interesting titles. I mean, about neurodivergence, specifically autism. Uh, you have the Unfuck series, <laughs> you Unfuck Your Addiction, Unfuck Your, unfuck your Intimacy, uh, and then a Neurodivergent Pride series with a book specifically specifically called Proud to be Retarded. You have a book about psychedelics and microdosing, actually many books. So I'm just wondering with books like that, I, must, I assume you sometimes get pushback. Uh, and I'm curious how you deal with that, you know, whether that's readers or buyers and, you know, when someone's offended by some of the things that you're doing, which are actually really edgy or clearly there's reclaiming going on, wh how do you handle that and what's your response to it? Well, it's like anything that you do in life. It's not for everybody and you wouldn't want it to be for everybody. And, you know, and again, it's like everything that we do really goes back to my upbringing and the way that, you know, I grew up in punk rock and and it wasn't, you know, and I, I guess it was meant to be challenging and it was meant to be subversive, but the point of those things is the fundamental functional aspects of them to help people. And when you do something like that and, you know, specifically we were doing and are doing book development based on like what would have been interesting to us, like what does appeal to us, you know, as readers, as people that, you know, love books. And so Again, you're going to repel some people when you express yourself honestly. Right. And I don't see that as a bad thing because it's like, um, you know, I think of it more like when you're honest and direct and communicative, 
that brings in the people that it is right for. And those are the people that it matters for, you know? Right. So to the major shift over these years, decades, really, when we started out, you know, we were definitely met with, as you, as you said, you know, like, and you know, like the kind of arrogance you could only really have as a teenager, you know? And then um, now that shifted where, you know, somewhere along the line, people began to embrace what we were doing. And we're like, oh, this is really cool, actually. And in a lot of cases, that conversation was much more along the lines of the buyers saying, like, I don't think I could have this in my store. Like, this is pretty far out there. And to then coming back a few years later and saying, you know, I realized that my customers love this kind of thing. I just wasn't comfortable with it yet, and I have to get ready for it. So we're in it for the very long game. And the thing that really has served us is, you know, we're going to be there next year, and we're going to be there the year after that. And if you're not ready for it now, you might be ready for it in five years or 10 years, you know, and it's when we did, um, I think the original Unfuck Your Brain was 2016. And when we did that book, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, we got a lot of pushback, but much, much more than that, we got very enthusiastic responses. Um, I mean, it's that book is sold like in the mall. It's sold, you know, in all kinds of places that we've never been able to reach before. And it's not because it's less edgy, let's just say, you know, so like that honest expression of self, I feel like that is the secret as much as people have frequently framed it as the weakness. Joe, I love how that is a great business plan unto itself, the honest expression of self. Mm-hmm. And that you've mentioned uh, several times that your your business was spawned from a punk rock ethos, which I'm I almost every time I encounter that, it's a good thing. And in fact, NaNoWriMo came from a punk rock ethos. A lot of people don't know that. But um, I want to touch on actually that you're an author of many books yourself. And I'm curious about if you have a strategy or goal when it comes to what what you publish in your name. And in terms of your identity, are you more aligned with being a publisher or an author or are the two interdependent for you? Um, so I, you know, it's it's interesting. I never thought of, well, and I think I largely still don't really think of myself as an author. I think of it more like I have a certain number of obsessions and I have a certain amount of access and I have um, a certain amount of feedback that I receive due to my role in the publishing industry. And so what happens a lot is, you know, I'll be at an event, you know, whether, you know, normally it's more of like a consumer show than like a trade show and people will come up and they'll be like, you know, it'd be really cool. It'd be like a book about X, Y, Z. And you're like, Oh yeah, that would be really cool. And then, you know, that'll percolate maybe over years. And then if we don't run into the perfect person to write that book, sometimes, I'll come back and be like, oh, yeah, I could maybe do that. That might actually work out. And it's interesting because it didn't – it was never really the plan. It was more like those were the projects where I couldn't really find somebody else to take it on, you know, if that makes sense. (laughs) And so I, like, somewhat reluctantly was like – you know, and and I think anybody that's written a book, it's like 
knows it's a ton of work. So you have to love it and you have to love it from beginning to end. And, you know, I think any, like anybody else that has maybe written a book, some of this stuff, it's just like stories that are so cool that you can't not tell them, you know? And, and I think about it too, from the perspective of like, I just had so many boring things force fed at me that I really want to be like, look, you guys, books can be so cool. I love that, Joe. It's also funny um, and and so true. And you mentioned, uh, well, that that little book that I read and mentioned before, How to Resist Amazon, um, you're interviewed in that book. And you said that there's a myth that publishing is going down the tubes and that, in fact, there are more indie bookstores springing up all the time. And you say your sales are up significantly. Indie bookstores are on the rise. And really that part of our problem as an industry is that we bemoan our powerlessness in the face of Amazon and we do nothing about it. So I'm a publisher. (laughs) What would you say to me and other publishers who want to follow in your footsteps? But also, like, how do you as a publisher explain to new authors your stance on Amazon, especially because authors are so Amazon obsessed? Right. I would say even more than that, authors' moms are Amazon obsessed. (laughs) That tends to be the one, like the ones we hear about the most, where they're like, my mom wants to know why my book is not on Amazon. Right. Or my, you know, and it's like, that's really the kind of thing, you know, and I get it. It's like for many people, you know, what we tell them is just don't worry about it. Pretend like it doesn't exist. You'll, you'll sleep better. And then we can show them the data. And I will tell you that when we first made that decision, a number of our best-selling authors were nervous. And, you know, because we did not prep them (laughs) for this in advance that we were going to do this. You know, they just then began seeing it and they were kind of like, I don't know, do you know what you're doing? And, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, to be fair. But then, you know, when it was... Or as one of them put it to me, when my royalty checks doubled overnight, I was like, well, keep it going. You clearly know what you're doing. Right. Money talks. Right. Well, it (laughs) it shows that we didn't know it, but we were – really, we meant to maintain. We didn't mean to grow. And we just thought this would be a more streamlined workflow, and it was. But that also obviously gave us the opportunity to have – more people hours to do more things. But I think the answer to your question is that you really want to speak your ambitions, not your fears. And that is a much better course for decision-making because you can be afraid of things all day long and have that guide your actions, but that's never going to take you where you want to go. I love that as business advice, Joe. And in closing, based on that, I admire, you know, the work you're doing so much and you're an activist publisher, which is, you know, the best way to be. And when I think of your history, you know, beyond the record label that you started out with, you also started out with zines. And and then this has all grown into, you know, you being a major indie publisher, but you're still young. So you have a, you have a, a long road ahead of you. And I'm curious, is there anything you or microcosm would like to do or see uh, with regard to to affecting more change in this industry in the next ten years, or 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 do you have things that are still in the works? Oh, absolutely, and thank you for calling me young. That is not something that people call me regularly, <laughs> but and, but it, but you're right. It's that because I started so young that you know I could have a fifty or sixty year career, or even more than that. But 
you know, and still be accomplishing things just because, well, you know, I mean, I see it all the time where like, there'll be like the obits where somebody is 94 years old and publishing and not retired. <laughs> and you're like, that's kind of awesome. I don't know if that's the life I want. But it's probably the life I'll have, you know, and and but anyway, and I think it does come down to, as you said, this idea of like, what are your ambitions? Like, what do you want to accomplish? And, you know, I'm at my point in my career where I've accomplished so much more than I ever thought would be possible. You know, I mean, I never thought we would have a book that would sell millions of copies or you know, have a thousand plus titles or anything like that. And so, you know, that kind of made me reassess in the last three years to look at it from a different point of view where it's like, I want to show modeling that you can, that the the world is still your oyster in publishing, that you can create your visionary, you know, model, no matter what that is, and that you aren't, reliant on corporation as savior that you can you know consolidation has really wrecked the industry in the last decade i mean i think that's hard to argue with but it doesn't mean that that determines your course of action you can really still build the model and be the kind of publisher that you want to be from a visionary point of view rather than from that being dictated to you well, inspiring, Joe. We were supposed to sit on a panel together and then COVID hit again or, you know, for the third or fourth time. So let's uh, let's make sure we do that sometime in the next couple of years. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been, I really enjoy anything where you can look at how the world could be different and how other publishers could like create an even better model than anybody has thought of yet. I love it, Joe. Thank you so much. Well, thank you to Rachel and Joe. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to August for being a month in which we allow ourselves a little bit of a break so we can recharge and come back renewed and refreshed in September, just like back to school. Uh, And thank you, Grant, wherever you might be. (laughs) Wherever I am. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Keep listening. Till next week.